To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. There are many letters in your New Testament. We call them epistles. In fact, most of your New Testament is composed of epistles, letters. James and Jude, the brothers of Jesus, each wrote an epistle. Peter, everybody's favorite disciple, wrote two. John himself, who's penning the book of Revelation, wrote three. Paul the apostle, who was not of the twelve, but was out of time born, as he said, wrote either 13 or 14, depending on who wrote the book of Hebrews. It doesn't say who wrote it, and the church literally has been debating that since the first and second centuries. You can go back in your church fathers debating, did Paul write or not write the book of Hebrews? It really is irrelevant for today's point. point is there are a lot of letters in your New Testament because the, the great salvation event had happened, these congregations were being planted, and they needed help. But there are seven more epistles in your New Testament. And Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 contain seven epistles written by Jesus Christ himself. Let that sink in for a minute. Of all the authors of the New Testament, Jesus is one of them. Now, when we talk about inspiration, we don't hold to the same view of inspiration of our scriptures that the Muslims do or the Mormons do. Because we do not believe in what is called dictation. That, you know, Micah was just uh, seized by the Spirit and kind of wrote and then woke up and said, ah, this is pretty good stuff. We believe that the Lord used the individual personalities and lives of each writer of Scripture, that he superintended their circumstances, guided their thoughts, guided their hand. This is how Peter describes it, that they were carried along by the Spirit. However, in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, we have dictation from Jesus to the Apostle John. Because Jesus, as we just read, specifically tells him, write this. He did not put an impression upon his heart. He did not burden him with a message for the churches. He said, write down what I'm about to tell you. So we have seven letters from Christ that for all intents and purposes might as well be written in those red letters if you had one of those Bibles. And as we go through each of these seven, we're going to take one week to go through each seven because they are that important. So the eschatology portion of the book of Revelation, we'll pick that back up later. But for right now, we're talking about those things that are that Jesus told John to write. And as we go through these seven, there's a pattern to each of these letters. There's a very similar structure to each one. And some of them uh, do not violate the structure, but they'll have one piece and not another. And comparing and contrasting them is one of the ways you study these seven. But we're going to begin by, by seeing the first piece, which is a command to write to the angel of the church in that city. It's the first piece that each of these letters is going to have. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Or Smyrna, or Pergamum, Thyatira, Laodicea, etc. And we hit this a little bit last week, and we're going to hit it a little bit this week. When it says, write to the angel of the church, what exactly does that mean? Well, exactly, we don't know. Uh, we have some good ideas, and you might have your favorite idea, and that's okay. It does not affect how we interpret these at all, but it is interesting to consider. The word angel is angelos. It just means messenger, but 
it's not just a messenger, as you know, because if you read throughout the book of Revelation, when he uses that word, he's talking about these heavenly beings that we refer to as angels. In the Bible, refer to Satan and his angels, his messengers. So there's really four options here if you're taking notes. Uh, the first option is that this is, in fact, an angel. That there is an angel that superintends and oversees each congregation of believers. I think that that is a very interesting idea, and I think it is eminently defensible from Scripture. We'll talk about it in the book of Acts, that Peter's angel, they, they say, oh, Peter's angel is here. It was actually Peter, but it reveals that they believed in, in some form of guardian angel, not in the way that we typically think about it, I would say, but uh, that there is angelic oversight and protection of each of the churches. The weak point of this argument is, why is John writing a letter to the angel of the church? And who exactly is going to deliver that letter to the angel? And uh, if it's just going to be read in the church and the angel will hear it, well, I mean, that's certainly possible. But that is the weak point of that, of that point. The strong point is that you just take the word literally, which is always a strong point. The second one is that this is a reference to the pastor of the church. That God's messenger, and Revelation speaks of everything in heightened terms, right? The seven spirits of God, as opposed to the one Holy Spirit, right? That Jesus is a lamb who has been slain, rather than just, you know, the man, Christ Jesus, as Paul would call him. But uh, it could be that by referring to the angel, the messenger of God for each church, he's talking about the pastor, the shepherd of each church. The difficulty with that one is, well, it says angel, not pastor. Uh, the other difficulty was... There doesn't seem to have been a consensus over how the churches were governed and ruled at this point. There were some places that had a plurality of elders. Uh, we see places where there's somebody like Titus functioning as a bishop uh, over Crete. But his point was, his mission rather, was to raise up elders. So which angel is he writing to? Although it wasn't long until the church began to recognize the value of having uh, one shepherd, one pastor of the church as we typically do today. The third option is that this is an actual messenger, an emissary from each of the churches. That John, who is in exile on the Isle of Patmos, had received seven visitors from seven churches that he helped oversee as, as the pastor of the Ephesian church. And maybe they had questions for him, or maybe they had just come to visit. He was not kept behind bars. He just had to stay on the island of Patmos. Some traditions believe he was put to hard labor, but he could have received visitors and sent letters. So perhaps he had received visitors from each of them, or the Lord knew that he was going to. And he's going to say, I want you to send an emissary, an angel, a messenger to each of these churches. Uh, difficulty there is, it seems kind of like heightened language. And uh, to just describe a, a letter carrier, just to call them an angel, and again, heightened language and revelation, it's possible. Uh, but also, we don't have any indication of that from the text other than just calling them the angel. So it's not quite an argument from silence, but it's kind of, sort of, an argument from silence. But I do think it's a, pretty, uh, it's a pretty good way of looking at it. The last way of looking at this is that this is just an abstraction. Now, when he says write to the angel of the church, he doesn't literally mean anybody in particular. He's just describing this is a, a special way of talking about the church, right? To the angel of the church. You might say the spirit of the church, not the Holy Spirit, but like us together, like our angel, our messenger, that the church itself is a messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think at least that is true. That whatever he's, he's writing to here, whatever it specifically designates, it includes the fact that he's writing to the whole church. These letters are not just to be written to one person, but to all the churches. And the weak point, though, of that 
is that in the symbolism we saw in chapter one, the stars represented the seven angels and the lampstands represented the seven churches. So in the symbolism we have here, the, the stars, the angels are not exactly the churches, although there's a connection there. What do I think? I don't know. Take your pick. I really don't have a strong opinion on this one. I think that there's something to be said for each one of them. Do I believe each church has angelic protection and oversight? Yes, I do. Do I believe that the pastor and the leadership of these churches should have been the first ones to heed these words? Yeah, I do. Do I believe it's possible that John was writing to emissaries to go to the churches? Well, we know he was doing that because we have the letters right here in front of us. That God wanted him to send emissaries he couldn't leave to the churches. And does this refer in broad strokes to the church itself? Yeah, it does. So uh, if we were having home fellowships this week, this would be a great thing for you all to get all angry and shout and flip tables over. But since we don't have them until next week, you'll just have to, to leave off, I suppose. Do that at home. But let's look at this, this first letter here. It was written to the church of Ephesus. All of these churches, these seven churches, are in what was called Asia. And this is not the continent Asia as we think about it. This was the Roman province of Asia. All of these cities that we're going to read about are in modern-day Turkey, the western portion of Turkey. And the first one is to the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a major city in this region. Not all of the ones John writes to were. But if Ephesus was, it was a metropolis. The numbers that I saw estimated anywhere between 175 to 250,000 inhabitants. So about 200,000 people lived in this city, which at the time was colossal to have that many people. It was a port city, although now if you go and visit old Ephesus, it's six miles from the coastline because of erosion that filled in uh, the harbor and the bay. And even at this time, there were constant engineering efforts to try to keep the port of Ephesus open because it was so important. So they've been dealing with changes in the, in the environment uh, to affect their economy for quite some time, it would seem. It was a free city, which means it was not Roman, right? Ephesus was not in Rome. Rome was in Italy, as we'd call it today. And, but it was a free city, meaning it was largely self-governed. Rome would let them govern themselves and would not really bother them as long as the taxes continued to come in and so on. The step up from that was something called a colony, where it was this city, even though it's not in Rome, is governed as if it was Rome. And everybody there is a citizen and so on. But this was a free city, so it was given a lot of leeway from Rome. And it was home to the famous Temple of Artemis, which we have an artist rendering on the screen for you there. This was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had these enormous columns, some of which are still t standing today, which tells you how well it was built. And it was, it, poets and historians talk about how beautiful this site was at the top of the hill. But, of course, we know that inside that temple, there was orgiastic worship of a fertility goddess going in, on in the inside of it. And uh, if you look at even some of the idols that they would sell of this goddess, they're, they're grotesque looking. They're pornographic, but like to an extreme and unsettling degree, because that was what they were doing. They had temple prostitutes who were priestesses. Because if you were having sex with this priestess, she represents the goddess, so it's like you're having communion with the goddess. Isn't that a great way to justify sexual immorality? Oh, it's just religion. It's fine. And that is where Paul planted a church in Acts chapter 18. 
But in Acts 18, he didn't stay there long. He planted the church, and he actually left Priscilla and Aquila behind him, who were the first leaders, and we would assume Aquila would have the the, uh, forefront there, of leading the church in Ephesus. This is where Apollos came through, who the Bible says was mighty in the scriptures, and preached the gospel, but he didn't know all of it. So Priscilla and Aquila took him aside in Ephesus and explained it to him. And eventually, Paul did come back. And he ministered there for three years, which is the longest we have on record of Paul staying anywhere during his missionary journeys. Second place was Corinth, a year and a half. So Paul stayed in Ephesus twice as long as he stayed anywhere else. And the gospel was so effective in Ephesus that nobody was buying the little silver idols of Artemis anymore, or Diana to use her her Roman name. Nobody was buying them. So Demetrius, who was a silversmith, started a riot in the city because we got to get these Christians out of here because nobody's buying my, my silver idols. I'm losing money. So you can read about this in Acts 19, that he's saying these people are trying to defame our great goddess Artemis. And it says, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companion in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. There was a riot because the gospel was so powerful, nobody was worshiping idols anymore. And the idol makers started a revolution (laughs) to get rid of the Christians. And they weren't able to, and Paul was able to stay for a long time. But the point is, there was an effective gospel church in this city with a long legacy of great leaders. Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, Paul. Timothy took over the church from Paul. If you read 1 and 2 Timothy, This is Paul giving him instruction over how to lead that church. And church history tells us that John, the apostle himself, departed Jerusalem just before its destruction and took over the the pastorate of Ephesus and was there for 30 years. So how'd you like that for a string of pastors in a row? Start with Aquila. Then you go to Apollos, kind of a guest speaker, but anyway. Then Paul, then Timothy, then John. And, I mean, you look through church history that, I mean, guys like Ignatius and Polycarp were writing letters and doing ministry in in Ephesus. It was a vibrant church. We have more letters written to Ephesus than any other place in the New Testament. First of all, the letter to the Ephesians, obviously, right? First and second Timothy were both written to Ephesus. Many people have speculated that first, second, and third John were either written to or from Ephesus. We know, by the way, Corinthians was written from Ephesus also. And now we have part of Revelation written to the Ephesian church. So we know who these people are. And this is who he's to write to. To his own church first, his own pastorate first. After, the, after you get that, so in all these letters, you have the, the greeting and the right to, and names the city. Then it gives a description of the one who is authoring this letter. And it takes a piece of the description of Jesus we saw in chapter one, and it ascribes that to him as the author of this letter. So you see, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So Jesus is the one writing this in his glorified state. He holds the seven stars. Remember, these are the angels of the churches. And the lampstands themselves, which he walks among or walks in the midst of, are the churches themselves, right? Let your light shine. You don't put your light under a bushel, you put it on a lampstand. That's what the churches are. So what does this express? Why is he emphasizing this in particular? Well, by holding the angels in his hand, the stars in his hand, we talked last week about how the stars were in his right hand, and then when John was afraid, Jesus put his right hand upon John. It's it's an expression of security that Jesus has got you, right? 
But in this chapter, he uses a different word for the word hold in Greek. In chapter 1, it's just a generic word, who holds you in, in his hands, right? In this chapter, though, he uses the word krateo, which is a much stronger term. You might describe it as like hold fast, like an old sailor. Whereas in the first chapter, it was hold like, gentlemen, you hold your woman tight, right? You hold her so she won't be afraid. This is more like, we're going to hold territory. We're going to hold our position. I've got hold of you. It's two different Greek words. So this is not just expressing security. He's here expressing authority. You're in my hand. I've got you in the palm of my hand. We still say that today, don't we? The terrifying figure that we saw in Revelation chapter 1 is, in fact, the head of the church, according to Colossians 1 verse 8. He's the head of this church. And by walking among the lampstands, he's showing himself to be present, that he's interested in every church, that he takes notice of each one and is involved with each one. And this could be its own point. We'll refer to this many times, but Jesus goes to church. Do you know that? Jesus is not distant from the churches. By his Holy Spirit and in their triune perichoretic relationship, he's here among the churches. How many churches right now are having congregation, having service across our city? Jesus Christ is walking in the midst of all of those lampstands. He's present among each of them. He's interested. He's not distant. So many people say foolish things like, and this is not the point of the message, just important though. Say foolish things like, well, Jesus died for sins, but the church was man's idea. No, it was not. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. And here he is writing letters to the churches, acknowledging I'm the one that holds you, and I'm the one that walks in your midst. He's the one who builds the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So once again, we have comfort that he walks in the midst of the lampstand, that he's here. But there's also a measure of authority there, too, that he's here. Y'all know that when mom and dad were at the grocery store and you were home by yourselves, you did things you ordinarily would not do when dad was walking in the midst of your lampstands. There's authority there. Kind of like you drive different when there's a police officer behind you. Not anybody here doesn't do that, but, you know, I've heard stories. But there's also a sense of fear and dread we saw this a lot in the Gospel of Luke, that when Jesus did an amazing miracle, people would be afraid because they realized God was here. God was here. And you know what I was doing last night, but God was here. And Jesus has something to say to the churches. Before we move on, and I will take a day where I will address this more directly, but today I have something else that I want to focus on. Uh, there is a very common popular view, especially among conservative evangelical Christians, that the seven churches in Revelation are an allegory for the seven ages of church history. And that the first one represents the age from the time of Christ's ascension up into uh, the, the first serious persecution that came upon the church. I really like that idea, and I have preached it before. I am not certain and confident that it is justified from the text. And we will take another day to look at this. When you try to lay it out, it's like, man, that sure fits real tight, but here's the problem. Christians have been doing this for a long time, and they have to constantly be adjusting <laughs> what the errors refer to. Uh, so I think there may be some typological significance there. I'm not so certain. I think each of these should apply to every church in every generation. 
And those that hold to the church history view, they also think that, to be clear. Uh, but we'll take another day. We'll look at it in more depth, and we'll let you ju uh, judge for yourself. But I will say this. In any case, Ephesus does not just represent the waning church of Ephesus after 40 years. It represents all of us. Any church that is described by the description that Jesus gives them, it applies to them. So let's look at this. That's a, that's a nice long introduction. We're not going to repeat that for each of these seven churches. Let's get into what Jesus has to say. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Pause right there. The next step that comes in each of these letters is a commendation except for in a couple instances where Jesus had nothing good to say about the churches. But in most cases, there's a commendation. He's going to say, this is something good about you. Always beginning with that phrase, I know your works. I'm walking in the midst of the lampstands. I've got you right here. I know what's up. I know what's going on. And Jesus Christ, knowing your works, is either terrifying or reassuring, depending on your works. If you're being falsely accused by people, and Jesus says, I know your works, you go, well, at least God knows what's right. But if you've been fooling everybody, and Jesus says, I know your works, you kind of sink down in your chair and go, oh, no, he knows. Yeah, he does. And, but Christ has much for which he's going to commend the Ephesians. And these three things that he commends them for are an example to all of us, and I hope should characterize our church as we move on into the future, and I, I think already does. The first one is their toil. Toil means labor, means work. The Ephesians were hard workers. Romans 12, 11, Paul warned the church. He said, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. The Ephesians had this one down. They were not lazy in their zeal. They worked hard. They threw themselves heart and soul into the work that God gave them. Colossians 3, 23 says, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto God, not unto men. They did that. Every congregation needs to have a culture of service. That you do not just come to service, you come to provide service. You're not just coming to the church to be fed, you're also coming to the church to feed. You're coming to help edify. You're not just coming here to be built up, you're coming to build up. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the same attitude that should characterize you when you come to church. Not to be served, but to serve. And on those days where you feel like, I just need someone to minister to me, that's the day when you ought to minister to somebody else. Because there's no greater blessing than to see God use you to help somebody else. Get outside of your own problems for a little bit. And this is a Calvary Chapel distinctive, man. We really have a do-it-yourself, go-getter, entrepreneurial attitude when it comes to service. And I don't mean this congregation, I mean all the Calvary Chapels. But this one too. If you're not serving in this church, and this is your church, get to work. Don't just sit there and take it in. Get to work. Do something. Help out with the children's ministry. Help out with the tech team in the back. If you play music, play on the worship team. We've got the pregnancy center. We've got the prison ministry. We've got the, um, what's the other one? Help me out. The, the discovery club. Yeah, go to school and teach the kids. There's a million things to be done. Greeting, do it, uh, making coffee in the mornings so that y'all can come in and get your coffee. I know you appreciate those people. Vacuuming the sanctuary, cleaning those big windows we got in the back. This, there's a lot of things that need to be done. And if you sit there and say, well, why aren't we doing da 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 Because God has put it on your heart and we're waiting for you. Toil, labor, 
Can you characterize your Christian life as labor? I hope so, because they did, and Jesus commended them for it. The second thing is endurance, patient endurance for the Lord's namesake, he says. This describes the persecutions that were starting to arise under Emperor Domitian, which is why John himself had been sent to the Isle of Patmos. Each church has to be prepared to suffer. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So if you're not, you need to ask yourself why. The Ephesian church did this. They had borne up under their persecution well. They had endured through that persecution. And every church has to be ready for this, to suffer death for Christ's sake. Are you, are you willing to die for Jesus? Like, yeah, in a foreign country when, you know, they, they try to drag me into the streets. Well, what about in this country? Are you willing to die for Jesus? There are people that have killed lots of Christians in this country for following Jesus. There's always going to be somebody that hates the church. Are you willing to die? Would you rejoice if you knew that was your destiny? Well, what if you don't die? What about suffering? Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Not just to suffer, period, but to suffer because of Jesus. Or would you start to wonder, maybe I ought to tone down this religion thing. How about imprisonment? Are you ready to go to prison for Jesus? Would you go to prison for Jesus? I hope so. Or are you willing to be deprived for Jesus, to miss out on promotions and opportunities and raises and jobs for the sake of Jesus? Are you willing to be shunned and ostracized by your neighbors, to never quite feel like you fit into the broader culture? I hope so. Are you at least willing to suffer insult and reproach for Christ's sake? I think most of us are. However, I think we saw, uh, especially during the wackiness that went on during the pandemic, and there were a lot of insults and reproaches being hurled against the church, rather than rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus, another people returned reviling for reviling, and I was ashamed. That's not what we do, guys. We suffer gladly. And do we, like, do, if there's, you know, action to be taken, do we take it? Yeah, but we don't respond in kind. Jesus didn't respond in kind. And the Ephesian church had this down. They were enduring. And the third is, they had tested false teachers. They were orthodox. They were sound in their doctrine. They didn't put up with false teachers. They tested everybody that came through there. I mean, they had been extremely well taught. Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, Paul, Timothy, John... Or, you know, an abundance of blessing by, in their teachers. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us not to despise prophecy, but to test all things. It's like, don't discount the fact that God still speaks through his people, but test everything by the word of God. 1 John 4.1 says, brothers, do not believe every spirit, but test all things. The Ephesian church had done that, especially as we're going to see in verse 6, the Nicolaitans. We don't know exactly who they were. We'll talk about them more another day. But they were maybe the first heresy or the first cult that the church was dealing with. And some of the churches were letting them in. The Ephesian church, they didn't. They had sound doctrine, which is of paramount importance. People that say things like, doctrine doesn't matter. Read your Bible. There's an awful lot in there about sound doctrine and right teaching. We're to test everything according to God's word. Like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 who says they were noble for doing that, by taking everything to the Bible and evaluating it. Not their doctrinal system, not their culture, not their politics, not the way they grew up. The Bible. What does God's word say? I hope that if anybody ever has a question about doctrine or about a belief, you will start by saying, well, God's word says, 
I don't care about God's word. You know, well, I do. That's the kind of answer you're going to get. This is how you are pr protected against false teachers. It's through good teachers, through sound teaching. And if Ephesus had them. They had good teachers that knew what was right and refused to compromise. And these three things, toil, endurance, and sound doctrine, these things are to be characteristic of every New Testament Jesus-following church. We are not to be a source of entertainment for anybody. Well, I'm going to go to church and hear a good speech and hear some rousing music and get my kids a little religion and we'll go on home. And we'll go to the next thing. Got the day off anyway. That's not what we're here for. We are a spiritual community safeguarding the truth of the gospel, come to grow together so that we continue to proclaim the message and become more like Jesus. That's what the church is. It's not very slick. It's not very attractive to most people. To those that are being saved, it absolutely is attractive. It's all that they want. But we're not here to do those things. We're here to labor and endure through suffering, not to avoid it by any means possible, and to test all things. So all of this demonstrates that Ephesus was a fine church. They were doing well in many very important ways. And in fact, if, if most folks were to look at the church of Ephesus, they'd say, right on. You guys have got it exactly right. That's the kind of church we need to be like. And in many ways, you'd be right. However, as important as all of those things that I just described are, labor and service to the Lord, endurance of persecution, and sound doctrine, it was not enough. They were missing a crucial piece that trumped all of those things. Look at verse 4 with me. But I have this against you. I know your works, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. This is always the next step, the correction. And there are some churches here that are not going to even need to be corrected by Jesus. Ephesus did. And the ESV here gives us a, a dynamic translation by saying you have abandoned the love you had at first. The older translation is, is exactly what the text says. Not that this is incorrect, but the actual wording. You have left your first love. You left it. That word for leave can even mean sent away. But I think leave is the proper sense there. You've left your first love. You've left your first agape. You know that word, I hope. This is that unconditional love that Christians are to have. And there's three options here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. What love is he talking about? Is this, first of all, the love for Christ? Is that the love that they've left? Number two, is it their love for one another? that they've left, that they've got all this stuff going right, but they're just loveless people? Or number three, is this just love in general? This has a characteristic that, you know, all of the above, you've lost it. All those things matter, and the Bible talks about each one. But I think in this case, it's pretty clear that the love for Christ is what is in focus here. Because Jesus is the first love of a Christian. Not only is it the first in order that you first experience as a believer, but it's also to be the first in importance at all times. Matthew 22, Jesus was asked by a sneaky Pharisee, what is the most important commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. We studied that quotation, the passage it comes from on Wednesday. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. That's the first commandment. And that was such a true thing. 
The Pharisees and Sadducees didn't even argue over that one. Like, okay, well, I'm with you on that, I suppose. Not that I like agreeing with you, Jesus, but I would agree. We discussed it. It is the love of God, and thereby, knowing what we know now, thereby Christ, the love of Christ, that is to characterize the Christian more than anything else. The most important thing about you as a Christian is to be your love for Jesus. Consider this from John's perspective. At this point, John is a prophet. He's going to see visions of the end of the world. He's the last living apostle. He himself is the ultimate authority other than Jesus and the Spirit in the church right now. If anybody has any questions, you go to John. Because not only did John know Jesus, but he's one of the 12. And it's fascinating to read these early letters of the church fathers when they talk about guys like John and they say, we're losing, they, they called it the living voice. Meaning, we have the word, and that's wonderful. But y'all younger guys, you're going to miss out. You're not going to be able to have that living voice. Meaning to talk to somebody like John who knew Jesus and was there and saw it happen. That's an amazing period of transition a unique generation in church history. This is who John was. Exiled, suffering for the name of Jesus. He'd gone through all the, the bumps and bruises. He's watched Jerusalem be destroyed. Yet at the bottom of all of that, the first thing that he ever had was a love for Jesus Christ himself. He, was, he called himself what in his gospel? The disciple whom Jesus loved. And I think you can very easily extrapolate from that. He was the disciple who loved Jesus. That was his, his story. Before he even knew who Jesus was, before he knew he was going to rise from the dead, before he knew he was really the Son of God, he loved Jesus. It was his first love. So this is what I think we're talking about here. Ephesus was a hard-working church. They had dynamic, wonderful ministries and outreaches. They refused to buckle under persecution. The first wave of killings and executions against Christians. And they stood firm. Not only that, they had sound doctrine. You would go and you'd have nothing to argue with about the things that they taught. And yet, that was not enough for Jesus. Do you hear that? Do you see that? That was not enough. Their personal delight in Christ was gone. And you have to know that. That this is love like you think when you hear the word love. You cannot get some kind of cute definition of love. Well, by love, they mean obedience. They were obeying. Well, by love, they meant suffering. They were suffering. So what was missing? That personal agape for their personal Lord Jesus. That personal love. There was no more joy just at the name of Jesus. There were no more tears when they remembered what Christ had done. It was no longer enough of a motivation for them to do ministry knowing that Christ would be pleased. They had left their first love. And I must say, a lack of childlike love for the person of Jesus is endemic to the American church right now. A lack of love, not for the church, not for ministry, not for worship, not even for the Bible, but for Jesus Christ himself, especially among mature Christians. Mature Christians, not the baby Christians that don't know better. Not the ones that say stupid things because they just got saved and they haven't even read the book of Malachi yet. 
old saints, whether by age or by years or experience, these are the ones that are failing in this regard. Because I think, there's one, one aspect, there's many that we could unpack, but I think because the mature saints in the church are taking their cues of how to think about Jesus from the public sphere and not from Christ. They're taking their view of who Jesus is and how he is to be regarded and discussed and talked about from the way everybody else discusses and talks about Jesus. And even those in the public sphere that like Jesus and like the church and talk about the Bible don't have any time for him as a man, as a person, as God. They have use for him as a symbol, as a teacher, as a guru, as a mark of our culture. That's who Jesus is. And that's where the love for Christ has gone. Longtime Christians in the United States of America in 2023 care more for the labor of the church. They care more for sound doctrine. They care more for enduring suffering and the trials that the church endures. They care more about that than Christ himself. These are the things that matter the most. The culture wars we must fight. The service that must be done in the church. Maintaining sound doctrine. That's what occupies our hearts and our minds rather than the man Christ Jesus. Who is this one who's left their first love? The one who despises popular piety. Who always has something critical to say about the way someone else is worshiping or praying or going to church or singing. They always have something negative to say rather than delighting in the fact that somebody is actually praying or singing. All they can focus on is the things they disagree with. Like Judas, when Mary poured out the alabaster flask on Jesus, and he said, why was this not sold and the money given to the poor? People that say things like, how dare these megachurches have lights and music? Don't they know that there's people starving? Jesus said the same thing to you that he said it to Judas. Leave them alone. Am I not worthy of this? The one who avoids worship so that they can serve. This can be a very small thing or it can be a very large thing. The person that says, I really don't have time to attend prayer and church because there's just too much work to be done. There's too many trips to go on. There's too many rallies to attend. There's too many actions that need to be taken to, for me to go here. It'd be, it's easier to get Christians to rally for a march about prayer in school than to get one percent of them into an actual church for a prayer meeting. And this can be on a very small scale too. The person that shows up to church and, oh, we're still singing. I'll go to the bathroom one more time. I'll get coffee one more time. This is going long. What do I got to do? We'll sit through a three-hour movie about blue aliens. When we come to church, we can't sit still for 45 minutes. Why are we laughing? It's not funny. It's blasphemous. person who has left the first love obsesses over doctrine but lacks kindness. They go online and they act just like the trolls they're fighting, blasting people with all kinds of terrible things to stand up for sound doctrine. The one that doesn't hear a word the pastor said because he misspoke in this one sentence and said something I disagree with, so I'm going to go let him know. And misses the entire point and sees the person weeping at the front of the altar and said, don't they know that he got that wrong? Or the one who will evangelize his politics more than his faith. I'll wear a bumper sticker, I'll wear a hat, I'll wear a shirt, and I'll let you know exactly what I think if I hear you saying it wrong. I don't care what my family says, I'm going to post about it online, and no one's going to shut me up. I've got the freedom to speak. But then you say, hey, we're going door to door to tell people about Jesus. Well, that's not really my ministry. 
or the one who rushes through their devotion because their schedule doesn't allow for it. I'd love to serve in, in church, but I don't, I'm so, where am I going to have any personal time? Well, I, I've got all these things that are going on and work just kills me. And oh Lord, you know my heart, so I'm not going to do the, these things. It's like in Luke chapter 10, Jesus was at, at the house and Mary, the young one, was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening. And Martha's in the kitchen and Mary's not helping. And Martha's getting pretty ticked off about it. So finally she goes in and she tries to bless out Jesus and his disciples. But the Lord answered her, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus said, your service is great, Martha, but what she's doing is better. And your lack of ability to do this, your failure to sit at my feet, is the reason you're anxious and troubled. Where's the love for Christ in the churches? I don't really have a problem with this, but I'm just going to use it to make a point, okay? So many churches, their byword is, we're all about people. No, we're all about Jesus. Because if you serve people, Jesus gets in the way. How many parachurch ministries started out as evangelistic outreaches and now say we're not going to have religion because it's exclusive? All of them is the answer, eventually. Where's the love of Jesus in the seminaries? I read these books that are full to the brim with sound doctrine, and yet it's dry as a bone. There's no life to it because there's no love for Christ. And people say things like, well, we can't write confessional religious piety in these things because then they won't be taken serious academically. Really? That's all it takes to shut you up? What are you going to do when there's men with guns trying to stop you? When there's a man at the door taking down your name to find out who you really are? Well, I'll stand up then. No, you won't because this is training for that. What about in the home? Where's the love for Christ? There's a million reasons for this, and I don't want to simplify, but I'll use this one example, okay? I don't understand why my children left the church when they grew up. Well, was, was there any church in the home? Or did you teach them that church was something to get through and to cancel if you needed to and to put aside and complain about when you got home so that you could get home and watch Netflix as fast as possible? No wonder they don't care, because you don't care. <laughs> It'd be much too easy to say, where's the love for Christ on the internet? Oh, so many Christian podcasts and blogs and videos, and they're all grumpy, angry, mean, nasty people. There's not one fruit of the Spirit showing on that tree. And yet that's the easiest thing to find. Don't you know, Christian, Jesus would rather use a flawed vessel that has love than a dead orthodoxy? I don't like that all the churches that are growing and spreading evangelistic messages and seeing revivals around the world, they're flawed in their doctrine. Yeah, they are, but boy, do they love Jesus. Well, we've got all of our doctrine right. But where's your first love? You've left it. Calvary Chapel Trustville is an Orthodox church. You can take that to the bank. We're a hardworking church. I commend you for that. I believe that we would hold up under persecution. We're all very excited and motivated about the ministry, but search your own heart. Is there a real love for Jesus himself in this place? It breaks my heart to think that maybe people are, are hearing more what I say and are impressed by what I have to say or what the worship team plays than about Christ himself. 
Well, what do you do? What's to be done in this case? Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus calls them to repent and do the first works. He's saying, come back to your first love. Just as every marriage has to work to maintain that love, so you've got to do for your Lord Jesus. Problem is, most of us will look at Ephesus and say, yeah, they got everything right, and that's enough. But all Christ can see is how far they've fallen. He remembers the days where Paul prayed for them and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And then when the sons of Sceva tried to cast out a demon with Jesus' name and they got beat up by a demon-possessed man. So all these magicians in the church came and burned all their magic books and wasted a whole ton of money at an act of splendid devotion to Christ. And they were dragged into the, to the arena and called out in front of everybody. That's what Jesus remembers and goes, everything you're doing is great, but what happened to that? Where'd that go? Calvary Chapel has churches all over the world. We've got sound doctrine and millions of hours of Bible teaching, but I can't help but think the Lord looked back and go, man, I remember when y'all didn't know anything, and everybody called you Jesus freaks, and you didn't know how to say it right, and you were obnoxious in everybody's face, and you worshiped in ways that made the rest of the church recoil from you, but your love was so pure. Where'd that go? Every denomination begins with love, only to atrophy and die when the love is lost. Don't believe me? Look at the Methodist church. John Wesley and George Whitfield, especially Wesley, the founders of that movement. And now look at them. They're shattering. They're falling apart under all kinds of sexual immorality and weird doctrine. They lost their love. Unless you sit here and think, okay, this is great, Tyler, but don't you think doctrine is more important than any kind of emotion? Don't you think that labor and enduring persecution are higher values than a love for Christ? You've got to heed the warning that Christ gives here. He says, I'll take your lampstand and remove it. The lampstand represents the church. He says, I'll kill your church. I'll get rid of you because I cannot have a church that has everything right, but no love for me shining as my witness in Ephesus. I refuse to let that happen. I won't let a dead church represent me. That's what Christ said, not me. He says, I withdraw my blessing. I'll withdraw my sustaining power. The Holy Spirit will be removed from your midst and the church will die if you do not repent. Of what? Of lack of love for Jesus. Not false doctrine, not buckling under persecution, not laziness, but a lack of love. Jesus said in John, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, not my doctrine, not my church, abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and he withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. The word abide means to continue. To remain, to stay, to keep going. Those that do not continue into that first love will be cast into the fire. Christ himself has sworn that. And you say, well, what about eternal security? What about it? Christ doesn't promise eternal security to people who leave their first love. And you can theologize that however you want. There it is in the scripture. He says, repent or I'll remove your lampstand. 
There is no security given to those who depart from the pure love of Jesus. Why? Because salvation is through Christ alone. It's, it's, and I'm going to be very careful how I say this. Please hear me. All right? Don't, don't misread this now. It's not even the works of Christ that save you in comparison to the person of Christ. It's not just having the right faith in the things that Jesus did. Because Satan gets that one. He knows what the cross meant. He knows what the empty tomb meant. It's faith and love for the person of Jesus. It's throwing yourself at his feet and calling him Lord. You're never going to twist Jesus into a full Nelson and say, my love for you isn't very strong, but I believed all the things you said, so you have to let me into heaven. That's never going to fly. I'll remove your lampstand from your place, he says. And those of you here who are getting excited by my proclamations this morning, get them, Tyler, yeah. That's what the church needs to hear. That's what the world needs to hear. This is the kind of preaching we need more of. Examine yourself first. You who feel the church has gotten too sloppy, too lax. Are you more concerned for the culture of the church you're losing that you're used to or for Christ himself? If you're more excited to see the sinner get slapped than to see Christ glorified, then you too need a rebuke. It does not matter your doctrine or your endurance or your ministry, if you are not first a lover of Jesus Christ. There are many that have been willing to die for the name of Jesus, not for him, but because it represented their culture, and they were proud of their culture. Do you think such a person was welcomed into heaven? They were not. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, the Lord said. I never knew you. Love for Jesus is not something you work on or struggle with or get around to eventually, or outgrow, God forbid, it's the only thing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I have decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. That's the gospel, Christ and him crucified. Not morality. Well, the church teaches good morals. The world needs it. Look at all this crazy sexual stuff going on. We need good Christian morals. Yes, but that's not the gospel. Or how about this? A gospel of miracles. God's going to fix all your problems. Just come to Jesus. That's what you need Jesus for. He'll heal your body. He'll get you your money. He'll do whatever you need. That's not the gospel. Or a gospel of motivation. I just need a reason to live my life. That's not what this is. If that's what you want, go somewhere else. That's not what this is. This is Jesus himself as Lord. You've got to return and do the first things. Just think about it. What, what characterized those days of your first love for Christ? Do you remember the joy that filled your heart for Jesus? I'll remember. I will always have the benchmark of my first love for Jesus at the summer camps I used to go to as a high schooler where I learned how to worship. I learned how to do my devotions. I learned what it meant to be around other people that were focused on Christ. And I look back on those days and I think about all the other people that were with, my dear friends, that were all there in the same room with me. And all I thought were having the same encounter and experience. And they're all gone. And it feels like it's just me. And I think on that and it just makes it so much deeper. I'm like, Lord, your hand picked me and you called me out of that. That's my first love. So if you feel yourself start to losing it, what do you do? Go back and do what you were doing then. It's not that the commendation was not good but that they were being Martha's and they missed being Mary. Where is the delight in your life of the person of Jesus, aside from all of his benefits? 
Like David in the field, writing songs, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. No expectation or hope that he would ever be king or the father of the Messiah or any such thing. When he was just out in the field, worshiping and delighting in the Lord his God. And that's why God said, that's the one that I want to be king. Where is that delight? All these people that want to use the church and the Bible as a marketing tool for their, their team of social whatever. I never hear anybody talking about the person of Christ. I never hear anybody talk about who Jesus was. They just talk about what he represents. And that's not enough. If America and the church in America is to be judged, it will not be for our doctrine because we got sound doctrine. It will not be for our labor because we work harder than anybody else. We send out more missionaries than everybody else. We have more love projects around the world. It won't even be for persecution because you all know what Americans are like. And you start pushing us down and we, we push back. And that will be an asset to us if persecution comes. But if we are judged, it will be for Ephesian idolatry. It will be for a church that has lost its first love and has started to have church for its own sake. Can't you see that it's already happening, Christians? That the winnowing fork of Jesus is in his hand and he's tossing the church to blow the wind of the Spirit on it and see if there's anything left to be saved? Anything worth saving? I, I believe with all my heart that that is what is going to happen. God is going to pour out his Holy Ghost upon this church. The wind is going to blow upon these dry bones and see if they live. And there might be a wonderful reaction and a response, but that's not going to be the test. The revival is not the test. It's when the revival ends, that's when the test comes. Is there anything there? Are there any roots? Yes, we've got to hate the Nicolaitans. We've got to have sound doctrine. Yes, we've got to labor. But we must love Christ more than we hate anything else. If your entire religion revolves around anti-woke church stuff, that's not enough. If your entire religion revolves around getting the doctrine exactly right and defending the way you grew up doing it, that's not enough. It's Christ and him crucified. And today you've got to leave the things behind that you've accumulated since your pilgrimage began. Because didn't everybody's day with Christ begin with leaving something? You've got to leave the old life behind, die to yourself that you might rise and walk anew in Christ. If you do that, verse 7 gives us a promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The final portion of each of these letters is the promised blessing to those who overcome. The tree of life, which of course was in the Garden of Eden, providing eternal life to anybody who ate of it. We're going to read about it at the end of Revelation in heaven. If you repent... You will have the opportunity to live forever as God always intended. And that's what conquer means, to endure to the end and finish. Lovelessness will cause you to fail in that journey. That's what the Spirit is saying to Calvary Chapel this morning. We have got to be characterized by a love for Jesus, the person of Jesus, the person of God the Father, the person of the Holy Spirit, our triune God, that that's what gets us up in the morning. Not any subsidiary thing. Because do you know what? I cannot help anyone. I have nothing to offer any of you. I can't talk to your kids for you or your grandkids or your parents. They'll listen to you. No, they won't. I have nothing to say. All I can do is introduce you to Jesus. Not as a magician to fix everything for you. 
Not as a lucky charm to keep you from bad luck. Not as a philosophy to follow, but as the living God made flesh who died for you and loves you with an everlasting love and sent me here today to plead with you to return to your first love. I reject and abominate the way we've allowed the world to frame how we view Jesus. We have answers for all the world's questions, but they don't know what questions to ask. Paul said in Philippians, whatever gain I had, I accounted as loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. Not for the sake of heaven. For the sake of truth. Or is there any such thing? For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It was Christ from start to finish for Paul. He never got over the road to Damascus. He never left his first love. He never got over that. And there were people all around him probably telling him, Paul, you got to move on and grow up to more mature things. And Paul says, what do you know of maturity if you've lost your love of Jesus? It's time to return, Christian, lest your lampstand be removed. But speaking of lampstands, that's the good news. That Christ indeed is right here in our midst. Speaking to you, calling you. That he might draw you to himself. So that he might restore you. So that he might light that fire again in you. Fear him. Fear Jesus. But fall at his feet so that he can draw you closer to himself. He will not reject that faintly burning wick that's about to go out. This generation does not need any more activists, whether they're Christian activists or whatever, or theologians or any such thing. It needs lovers of Jesus Christ. It needs somebody that is outside of everything that's going on. And when all these things are brought to them, all we can say is, do you know Jesus? Well, I believe in the, in the gospel. That's not what I asked. Do you know Jesus? I, I think I do. What do you mean you think you do? I know Jesus. And I love him so much. Look what, they, look what they did to him at the cross, but he did it for me. What, what, could I, what could I do other than love him with everything I've got? Leave your net like John did. Leave your water pot like the woman at the well did. Pick up your bed and walk and just follow Jesus, Christians.